We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans, and the ninth chapter, the book of Romans, and the ninth chapter, and I will be reading and then preaching this morning on verses 30 through 33, Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 33, as we complete our exposition of this ninth chapter this morning. I invite you to read along this morning as I read aloud. Here the Apostle Paul writes, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Our God and Father, again, we thank you for your kindness to us for this opportunity to gather this morning in the name of Jesus Christ and to hear his word proclaimed. And we would ask now for the work of the Holy Spirit, that he would guide our thoughts, that he would be our teacher, that he would grant us understanding of this text in such a way that our thinking would be transformed and our lives would be changed for the glory of God and for our own spiritual good. For we ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, over the past several weeks, we've been considering Paul's responses to common objections raised against the sovereignty of God in salvation as it is revealed to us through the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of unconditional election. For through his responses, Paul has not only revealed to us the, the true nature of election, and what is the true nature of election? God's free choice of individuals for mercy or for destruction for his own purposes. But Paul has also explained the real reasons why many of his kinsmen, according to the flesh, were still in a state of unbelief. And Paul's kinsmen were in a state of unbelief because they held to wrong beliefs and wrong assumptions related to God's word and related to God's character. For first they held to the faulty belief that God's word was actually capable of faltering, that God's word was actually capable of failing to fulfill God's saving purposes for his own people. For you will recall back in verse 6 of this ninth chapter that Paul wrote, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And of course, Paul responded in this way because there were actually some suggesting that very thing, that the word of God had in some sense failed Israel and that they were justified in having little confidence that God's promises would be fulfilled in the way that Paul had taught them. And yet Paul wanted them to know and to be assured that the word of God had been fulfilled just as it had been written and understood by God's people in the past. 
for what had been declared in advance about God's choice of men. For example, God's choice of Isaac and Jacob and God's rejection of Ishmael and Esau had come to pass exactly as God's word had declared that it would. And that God's purposes and election stood firm because the word of God was and the word of God still is a trustworthy record of what God has decreed. And so in responding to his opponents here in Romans 9, Paul first emphasized the reliability and the certainty of God's promises because the word of God will not fail. It will not falter. And what God declares according to his own saving purposes and election will come to pass. For the decision of who will be saved rests not with the will of man, but with God's own decree in eternity past, which has been revealed to us in this gospel age through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so not only does the word of God teach us about the nature of election, and we should accept and believe what God's word says, just as it says it, but it assures us that what God has purposed in election, that some will receive mercy and others will not, will come to pass just as the word of God has stated. And our response should not be to doubt this or to question this, but to ask God for the grace to receive it. To ask God for the grace to hold fast to it. Then secondly, Paul revealed that many of his brethren after the flesh were in a state of unbelief and rebellion because they were entertaining a very false notion, a very dangerous notion that God was somehow being unjust in the way that he chose to administer his saving purposes. For you'll recall that Paul wrote back in verse 14 of this ninth chapter, is there injustice on God's part by no means? And no doubt Paul asked this question because he knew that some were suggesting that there was some injustice on God's part. And yet Paul makes it clear that God is absolutely free to choose between individuals and that God is not unjust if he exercises his right as he sovereignly pleases. In fact, what we often overlook is the truth that God has a purpose for what he is doing, even in passing over some. And God's purpose is always wise, and it always promotes his own glory. Which is why God declared to Pharaoh back in Exodus 9.16, and Paul cites this again in Romans 9.17, For this very purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, that I might show my glory in you, my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. For what God does in his rejection of some men serves the purposes of his own might and glory. 
Then thirdly, Paul revealed that some of his kinsmen, according to the flesh, were in a, a state of rebellion and unbelief because they had allowed their own unbelief to persuade them that God was somehow at fault by demanding of Israel what Israel could not give to begin with. And they insisted that God had found fault with Israel while not allowing Israel the freedom to choose or given Israel the ability to accept his will. And yet you recall, I trust, that Paul countered this third objection in two ways. First, he denounced their arrogance in thinking that they had a right to accuse God of anything. In fact, Paul wrote in Romans 9, verse 20, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? For they were not in a position to question God's actions, and you and I, brethren, are not in a position today to question God's actions nor had they been appointed a judge over God's choices. So Paul reminded them that their arrogance had led them to speak unwisely when they should have been silent. By the way, that is the proper response oftentimes to what we read in the Word of God. Not argumentation, not questioning, but silence acceptance, belief in the word. Then in addition to addressing their arrogance and answering back to God, Paul also put them in their rightful place as mere vessels to be used as God wills, as mere clay to be molded in whatever type of vessel God chose for them to be. In fact, Paul wrote back in verse 21 of Romans 9, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And, of course, the answer to that question is most certainly he has that right. For the potter has absolute power to decide what serves his purposes and what does not. And the same is true with God today. God does not answer to us. He doesn't seek our advice or our input as to what we think is best for us. God molds men and women into the kind of vessels that honor him and serve his purposes. And rather than questioning or answering God back, a true believer in Jesus Christ acknowledges God's right to mold him or to mold her however he wishes, however he chooses, without answering back without fighting, without resisting. And a true believer is thankful for the mercy that God has shown in making him or her a vessel of honor. This morning, if you are a vessel of honor, it's not because of your choice, but because God has chosen you and God has molded you into a vessel of honor. 
And you should not be answering back to God or questioning anything, but you should be praising God for what you have received from His hand. And you should be expressing gratitude to God by living a life that shows true obedience to His will. So by answering these objections that we've been considering for several weeks now in Romans 9, Paul has provided us with some insights into the type of thoughts and the types of arrogant assumptions that the Israelites expressed that kept them from fully embracing God's promises and from seeing Christ in them. And sadly, some of these thoughts and assumptions still prevail today, even among those of us who are not Israelites. For the sinful nature of man is the same, whether he is a Jew or whether he is a Gentile. And oftentimes, men's unbelief will rise up in sinful objections to God and His Word that a wise Christian will counter and address with words of wisdom, as Paul has done. And yet, while the Apostle Paul countered the objections that revealed Israel's unbelief, as it was manifested back in verses 6 through 29, it is not until here in our text this morning, Romans 9, verses 30 through 33, that Paul explains Israel's unbelief. Paul explains Israel's unbelief in terms of how she went astray and in terms of how she stumbled over what God had actually intended by His grace to be a blessing. So if we want some real insight this morning as to what took place in the mind and the heart of Israel that led them to unbelief, this is where Paul provides that information. And Paul does so by contrasting first Israel's response with the response of the Gentiles. Israel's response as contrasted to the response of the Gentiles. For Paul states here in the beginning of verse 30 of Romans 9, notice this, What shall we say then? What shall we conclude then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. Needless to say, brethren, Paul is addressing a subject here that would have been very difficult for the Israelites to hear. By the way, Paul did not shy away from a subject simply because it would have been difficult to hear. But this is a topic that would have been difficult for the Israelites to hear, but they desperately needed to hear it. For you recall that the Israelites did not have a great appreciation for the Gentiles, but rather they viewed the Gentiles as ceremonially unclean and as outside of the promises made to Abraham and to his descendants. In fact, the Israelites would deliberately go out of their way to avoid coming into contact with a Gentile. They assumed God's displeasure rested on the heads of Gentiles, whereas God's favor rested upon their heads. For after all, Israel reasoned, we are the righteous ones. 
And yet here in our text, Paul explains to his readers, he explains to us that in all reality, the situation in God's providence played out quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. For although the Gentiles had made no attempts to earn a position of righteousness before God, which the Israelites simply assumed that they had the rights to, it was actually the Gentiles. It was those who were considered the spiritual outcasts by the Israelites who attained righteousness. Because in not pursuing righteousness as the Israelites had pursued it, the Gentiles had through the preaching of the gospel learned that the righteousness of God cannot be earned. The righteousness of God cannot be merited. And they also learned through the ministry of the Apostle Paul that there is a true righteousness of God that can be acquired from the hand of God himself through faith in Jesus Christ, which is in itself a gracious gift from God. So while the Gentiles were without all of the advantages and privileges that we discussed back in verses 4 and 5 of this ninth chapter, they acquired not through any effort of their own, but through the grace of God working faith in them, a true righteousness of God. And of course, brethren, this is the beauty of what God has done in providing a true righteousness to all who have been chosen for Christ through belief in the gospel. Because when it comes down to receiving the righteousness that we need to be accepted by God, it is not a requirement that we come to God through a position of privilege or entitlement. In fact, privilege and entitlement can often cause us to stumble but rather what we need has already been provided through Jesus Christ. And needless to say, what we need is a righteousness that Christ gives us, which is imputed to us by faith, and not a righteousness that we attempt to achieve on our own. For the only righteousness that God accepts this morning is the righteousness of his own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it cannot be attained, it cannot be gained, it cannot be merited through human efforts or human pursuits. And why is this so important to know in explaining Israel's unbelief and her subsequent rejection by God? Well, it's important because the Israelites went astray on this very point. They went astray on this very point. In fact, while the nation of Israel could not see or perceive this, the Apostle Paul puts his finger on this point right here in verse 31. Notice verse 31. Paul writes, But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. By saying this, Paul was not suggesting that Israel's pursuit of the law was an unholy endeavor. For, as you know, as we've said this repeatedly, the law of God is holy. The law of God is just. The law of God is right. 
and it is the desire of every true believer to walk in obedience to the law of God. And yet, while the law reflects the righteous standard that God requires, it does not have the power to make people righteous. It shows us the standard, but it doesn't have the power to make us righteous. In fact, only the work of the Spirit in justification can declare us to be righteous, and that based upon the righteousness of Christ given to us, not in the righteousness that exists within us. And so by pursuing the law, Israel acknowledged the righteous content that was in the law, but she erred in her insistence that the law and not Christ was the source of the righteousness that God demanded. In fact, in pursuing righteousness through the law and not through Christ, Israel rejected God's gracious provision of righteousness. She actually cut herself off from the provision of God. And of course, many lost men and many seemingly religious people today do the very same thing. For any attempt to impress God with our so-called obedience to the law in an effort to win for ourselves a place in his kingdom is in vain. It's in vain. And yet lost men are often very quick to point to some seemingly religious act that they are doing as proof that they deserve to be viewed by God and other people as righteous. And yet in all truth, when people do that, when they point to their own righteousness, to their own religious activities, rather than the righteousness of Christ, they are heaping to themselves condemnation. Condemnation. Where law-keeping, even religious law-keeping, is not the path to righteousness. Rather, it is the means that God has sovereignly appointed to show us the need for another righteousness altogether, a righteousness that we do not have, a righteousness that we cannot drum up, a righteousness that we cannot produce on our very best of days, a righteousness that comes from someone else, a righteousness that comes from one who kept the law of God and its demands perfectly. A righteousness from one who has the spiritual authority to give you his righteousness as a free gift. And that one being Jesus Christ. And so if we're doing what ancient Israel did, if we're trying to prove to God and to others what outstanding law keepers we are, let us realize the foolishness of that pursuit right now. For that pursuit led ancient Israel astray. In fact, that pursuit led Israel to feel entitled to something because of her efforts. That self-righteousness led them to develop an unbelieving attitude towards God when they didn't get what they demanded. Because once you start trusting in your own efforts... Once you start trusting in your own righteousness today, you begin to depart from the reality 
that you actually have no inherent righteousness whatsoever. In fact, all of your so-called righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags. Filthy rags. And it will earn you in exchange for your efforts nothing but certain failure. God will not be impressed by your feeble efforts or by my feeble efforts to accomplish that which only Jesus Christ could do. That which only Jesus Christ has already done. Therefore, my friends, hear me this morning. Be wiser than ancient Israel was. Learn from the failures of those who once claimed to be wise, but became fools in the things that they pursued. Recognize where Israel went wrong and do not do the same. Do not do the same. And where did they go wrong? Why did they stumble? Well, Paul tells us why, where they went wrong, and why here in the first part of verse 32. Notice this. For Paul asks the question, why? Or in other words, what was the cause of their failure? And Paul says, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. And is Paul's observation here a significant observation? Is it important? Is it worth our time this morning? Is it worth our consideration for a few moments today? Indeed it is. Because Paul's observation here reveals two key things. First, it reveals that not only were the Israelites ignorant of the kind of righteousness that they needed, but they were also ignorant of the place of faith in the saving purposes of God. The place of faith in the saving purposes of God. Whereas the Gentiles, as Paul has already stated in verse 30, attained righteousness by faith. And needless to say, this point is significant because if Paul's opponents had truly been spiritual descendants of Abraham, they should have known of the importance of faith as that which God credits for righteousness in the life of those he calls to himself. For example, we're told in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 8 that after Abraham received the promise that God would make his offspring as innumerable as the stars in the heavens, we're told that Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. Some of the most important words in all the book of Genesis. Abraham believed God, and what? And God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. How does righteousness come? Paul's given us the answer. He's given us the answer, not through law-keeping, but through faith. And of course, Paul also commented on the righteousness of Abraham's faith back in Romans chapter 4, when Paul taught on justification. And so Paul's opponents should have known that the righteousness that God requires was something that God gave to Abraham, not on the basis of his obedience, but on the basis of his faith, his faith. 
And yet the fact that they did not comprehend this, that they did not stress this, was proof that the Israelites in Paul's day were not in possession of that same faith that Abraham and all true believers have. Needless to say, this is something that needs to be stressed in our day as well. For what is credited to you and I as righteousness, if we are among the redeemed, is that faith in us which clings to Jesus Christ alone and his promises to us. In fact, if that faith is absent in us, it is impossible for God to credit us with any measure of true righteousness whatsoever. For one is given upon the basis of the other. Then second, Paul's observation here at the end of verse 32 that the Israelites pursued righteousness as if it were based on works is also revealing because it demonstrates that it is possible to fall into a works righteousness mindset even when we are surrounded by clear evidence that all that we have is received by grace. For the Israelites had been the recipient of God's grace all throughout their history. And there was plenty of proof that they did not deserve any of that grace. And yet in their hearts, they began to believe that what they did by way of righteous works, by way of obedience, was the determining factor in whether or not they'd received the promise. And therefore, it was only a matter of time in Israel's history that their hope shifted. Their hope shifted from God's promise of grace through a Redeemer to a headstrong determination on their part to earn their own salvation through law-keeping. No doubt, part of the grief that Paul experienced as he pondered the spiritual state of his kinsmen was the fact that they had traded the necessity of a God-centered faith as it had existed in Abraham for a works-based, formalistic system of religious law-keeping, a system that would only harden them even more because legalism only leads to greater unbelief. Legalism only leads to greater spiritual hardness. For not only had they taken all the focus off of God's grace, this is what Israel had done, they had taken all the focus off of God's grace, but they also set up clear obstacles to the truth of the gospel, which Paul longed to remove. Paul longed to preach the pure gospel to them. For wherever works righteousness is stressed, wherever human duty is overemphasized, the light of the gospel will be obscured. The light of the gospel will be eclipsed, and the judgment of God will surely and shortly follow. Therefore, brethren, let us always be on guard against those tendencies that exist within all of us 
to rely upon or to fall back on our own works or to trust in our own efforts as a way of pleasing God. Sometimes we're tempted to do that. To think that we can please God with a little more effort, with a little more commitment, with a little more grit, with a little more determination. And such an approach may seem wise at the moment. It seems wise to the carnal mind, but it is clearly a path of frustration, a path of self-exaltation, which leads God to humble us, a path that ultimately leads to rejection. And yet Paul also reveals here in concluding Romans 9 that we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised, brethren, when we see men falter and when we see men stumble over the truths that we've considered this morning. As believers, we can't believe that they do, and we wonder why, but we simply need to remember how we once were and who lost men are. For just as it has been decreed by God that some will come to faith in Christ, it has also been decreed that some will find Jesus a cause of offense and stumbling. In fact, in speaking of many of his kinsmen here at the end of verse 32, Paul writes, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And is there sadder words to hear this morning than that? They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Clearly, there is a strong sense of inevitability in Paul's words here. For just as men will trust in Christ and have their feet firmly established on him as the foundation and cornerstone of their lives, so there will also be men who find Christ and his ways untenable and unattractive. In fact, they find Christ so undesirable that they would rather rush forth into a Christless eternity than to submit to his headship and to give up their favorite sins. And that is so sad, and yet it happens every day. It's occurring all around us. No wonder Paul's heart was broken. No wonder our hearts should be broken. And yet the purposes of God will stand. The purposes of God will stand. That's what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 9. And not only will the purposes of God stand throughout all time, throughout history, throughout Israel's history, throughout our history, but Christ will be at the very center of all of it. He will be at the center of all of it, for Christ is portrayed in Holy Scripture as the one who is the focus of the Father's attention, the one whom the Father delights in, and the one who divides men. The one who reveals God's choice of men. Jesus said, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. Christ reveals those who have been given to him, those who have been chosen by God, by the way they respond to his words. Christ is the one by whom all men will ultimately be judged. He's at the center. He's in control. 
For Paul ends this final section of Roman nine by citing Romans nine by citing Isaiah twenty-eight and verse sixteen here at the end of our text, which exalts God's choice of Christ. God's choice of Christ in the roles that I just described. Let me read it for you. God declared through the prophet Isaiah to Israel these words, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling. The Father is laying this stone of stumbling. The stone of stumbling is Christ and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, brethren, in the final analysis, in the end, no man, no woman, no boy, no girl shall be able to remain neutral regarding Jesus Christ. Nor can men ignore the purpose for which Christ has been sent. Many will be offended because of Jesus Christ. And I hope and pray this morning that you're not one of them that you do not find the person and the work of Jesus Christ offensive. But even if you find it offensive, you will not overcome him. You will not overcome him. His purposes will stand. Many will find good reasons to follow Jesus Christ, and there are countless good reasons to follow Jesus Christ and you will find no reasons to be ashamed, none whatsoever. May God help us to honor Christ, to honor Christ, who was chosen for us, that we might also know the joy of being chosen by him. May God give us grace to respond to the word of God this morning. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word today, for the force of your word, for the power of your word to break down resistance, to pave a way, to make a way for your truth to prevail in the hearts and minds of your people. And we pray that your word this morning will conquer us that your word this morning will silence us, that your word this morning will cause us to bow the knee, to bow our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ, for that's what we need. As we conclude this ninth chapter of Romans, a chapter that we talked about before, that many preachers and teachers would rather avoid, we see great truth here to warm our hearts. We see truth to stand upon, to base our life upon, to rejoice in. And we would ask that this truth would take root in our hearts and that we would not doubt your word, that we would not question your purposes, that we would not think for a moment that you will fail us as our God, and that we will not for a moment think that by our own works of righteousness or self-righteousness, that we can merit that which only Christ can give and that which only Christ has already given to us if we are his people. Help us to rejoice this morning in nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. That is our hope. 
That is what will keep us stable in this changing, out of control, passing away world. Give us grace. Give us strength. And if there's anyone here this morning who's outside of Jesus Christ, may you, by your sovereign mercy, which you often display, open their hearts as you opened the heart of Lydia to the preaching of the Apostle Paul and grant them faith and repentance unto eternal life. We believe that you do that. You still do that in the hearts of men and women today. Please show mercy to whom you'll have mercy today. For we ask these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.